Greetings and salutations. What is up, everybody? GSK here on Wednesday, August 2nd. Keyboard Kimura. One question for every fight for UFC Nashville. Presented to you by the fine folks at One Bone. Listen, we are coming off what for me was, was an outstanding event. On paper going in, UFC 291 wasn't the biggest fight card. It wasn't the most exciting fight card of the year. But in application, in execution, it turned into one of the more exciting nights of the year, capped off by the Justin Gaethje head kick knockout of Dustin Poirier. And now we go to Music City. We get a hangover card that isn't really a hangover card. Traditionally, hangover cards are those events that come after pay-per-views that not a lot of people are necessarily checking for, that folks are a little bit maybe even checked out on, quite frankly. That isn't the case with this one. Lineup headlined by a bantamweight clash between Corey Sanhagen and Rob Font. A bunch of other interesting, compelling, competitive matchups up and down the lineup. Plenty for me to choose from for tomorrow for 10 things I like. But today, it's one cue. We start at the top. Sandhagen versus Font. My question is, can Rob Font find power shots again this time around? So last time out against Adrian Yanez, Rob Font was able to get Yanez out of there in the first round. He has been at times a big finisher like that. First fight of his career, big knockout of George Roop, various other points. He's had some good finishes. But for a little while there, for a period of time, Rob Font was sort of the death by a thousand cuts guy. He was going to beat you with volume and volume and even more volume. He was going to push a pace against you. The Cody Garbrandt fight, the one that obviously sticks out, right? Just went out there and put jab after jab after jab in the face of the former champion to secure that victory. And even the fight with Marlon Chito Vera that didn't go his way set a record for most strikes landed in a bantamweight fight, in a five-round bantamweight fight. Landing well over 300 strikes, wasn't able to get the victory because the impact coming the other way from Cheeto knocked him down, dropped him a couple of times at the end of rounds to win those rounds and ultimately win the fight. Against Yanez, they went out there and locked up in a bit of a boxing match pretty early on, both guys landing good shots. And then Rob Font found shots that put Yanez in jeopardy and then put him out. That hadn't been happening, as I said. And I'm really curious to see if it carries over here because Corey Sandhagen, while he certainly is capable of knockouts and finishes, it's usually more dynamic, more creative stuff. It's the flying knee against Frankie Edgar, which remains for me the best flying knee knockout of all time. It's the spinning wheel kick against Marlon Marais. He's not a guy that goes out there and finds an overhand right or a beautiful placed uppercut or a left hook in tight. If he does stop you other than those big dynamic movements, it's the cut against Song Yudong. It's volume. He's a, he's a volume fighter. He's a guy that is designed for these five round fights. And so what I'll be curious to see and what I'm really interested to pay attention to here is in a matchup where I think it could come down to the bigger blows, the more impactful shots, is Rob Font able to be the guy that dials that up? He steps into this one on short notice, moving from the UFC 292 card in Boston, where he was going to fight Song Yudong, to a five-round fight in Nashville against Sanhagen. It allows him to fight forward in the division, as opposed to facing Song Yudong, which would be fighting backwards. I understand completely why he takes this fight, why he shuffles to a main event, as opposed to fighting at home. But I'll be interested to see 
if he can go out there and find some of those bigger blows and some of those power shots because he wasn't planning for and preparing for a five-round fight. Sandhagen was. He has been in these fights many times over. Now, Rob Font has as well, and I don't question his conditioning, but there's a different level of prep that goes into a five-round main event as opposed to a three-round fight against Song Yudong. Additionally, Corey Sandhagen trains at altitude. You know that boy's got cardio for days. And so it might even behoove Font to go out there and try to get this done quicker than going out and following the death by a thousand cuts game plan. I think this is a super competitive fight. I'm really intrigued to see how it plays out, to see what Rob Font's approach is, because I think I know pretty well what Corey Sanhagen is going to do. Mix up his weapons, mix up his approaches, wrestle a little bit, move well, both sides, switch stance. I want to see if Rob Font can come out. We know he's going to box. But is he sitting down on the punches a little more? Is he dialing up some of that power? Was that a situation where Adrian Yanez just couldn't take that shot? Or has Rob Font sort of tapped back into bringing some power to things in the bantamweight division? Because if he has, this is even closer and even more competitive than it is already. Co-main event in the strawweight division, Jessica Andrade and Tatiana Suarez. My question is what does Suarez look like back at Strawway? So she returned off a 40-month layoff in February, fighting at flyweight against Montana De La Rosa, earning a second-round submission win. Good guillotine choke, good finish, certainly never going to fault somebody for getting a finish, remaining unbeaten, getting a good win after that long on the sidelines. But for anybody that had watched Suarez on the rise, on the way to becoming a hyped prospect. It wasn't her best performance. The fight with Nina Nunes before that, several years ago, wasn't either. She was a little dinged up going into that one. And I think there was some serious rust coming into that last one, right? And and understandably, as much as Dominic Cruz wants to say it's not a real thing, I think it's a real thing. You go 40 months without fighting. I don't care how many rounds you do in the gym. I don't care how much training you've done. There is something different about going live against an opponent that's trying to knock you out, that's trying to take you out, as opposed to being in the gym with people that you work with on a daily basis, whose movements you understand, who are there to help you prepare. So it wasn't the best performance, but but we give her a pass. And she got the victory, she got the finish. Now she goes back to 115, where prior to the layoff, Tatiana Suarez was, in my opinion, the number one contender. She had mauled Carla Esparza, she remained unbeaten with the win over Nina Nunes, who was ranked number three at the time, I believe, coming off a win over Claudia Gadea back in the day. And then she was hurt and sidelined, and it just became this prolonged thing where she's finally back. She's finally returning to the division. And I just want to see what it looks like. I just want to see if she's all the way back, if she's back to being that potentially dominant threat. Because on the way up, you saw Tatiana Suarez in some of those wins, Alexa Grasso, and, and especially for me, the Carla Esparza win, where you just went, who beats her? She can out, she's out-wrestling the best wrestler we've seen in the division in Esparza, who won the title initially by being a good wrestler. She had the big physicality of somebody that was going to be able to impose that on some of the more dynamic strikers. She showed some development and some ability on the feet. It wasn't just sell out wrestling, sell out grappling. 
And so now she goes back down and I just want to see if she can pull that back up, if she can get back to that form. Andrade is the right test here. And she steps in for Verna Jandiroba, which would have been a great fight as well, but one that felt a little to me one-dimensional. Jandiroba is also a grappler. And so it felt to me like Suarez would have an easier time getting into her grappling. Andrade, despite the fact that she's coming off consecutive losses and fighting for the fourth time in just over just under eight months, is still a threat, is still somebody that can go out there and make you pay if you leave your chin exposed and maybe catch a guillotine of her own or a standing arm triangle as she did to Amanda Lemos last year if you make mistakes. But she's also somebody that will overthrow and overcommit on a bunch of her shots and create opportunities, provide Suarez with opportunities to get into her takedown and get into her chain wrestling. And I just want to see what it looks like. I just want to see if she's able to go and do some of the things that Aaron Blanchfield did to Andrade earlier this year, some of the things she was able to do to fighters in this weight class prior to the injuries, prior to the layoff, when we all looked at her and thought, this is a woman destined to fight for UFC gold. The belt is on the line later this month in Boston, Zhang Weili against Amanda Lemos. I think if Tatiana Suarez goes out and looks really good here, looks impressive here, gets a stoppage win over Jessica Andrade, she might be the number one contender. Rose Namajunas has moved on. Carla Esparza is, is pregnant, welcoming her first child here pretty soon, I believe. There's not many other people kind of standing in line waiting to figure out who's going to face the winner of that fight. And so a good performance, a dynamic performance on Saturday may put Tatiana Suarez into a title fight either towards the end of this year or early in 2024. I want to see what she looks like. This is a really fascinating fight to me. Light heavyweights Dustin Jacoby and Kennedy and Zechiku. My question is, hasn't Zechiku really started to put things together? I think I asked this question of Kennedy going into his last fight against Devin Clark. He got a second round submission win and I came away thinking, yeah, it really does look like it's starting to come together. And so this is just further information, further data collection. It's won three straight, all by stoppage. He's shown more aggression, but also more poise and more composure. There were points earlier in his career when he would get stung, when he would get put in bad positions, when he'd get a little flustered that you would see that come out of him and the processing either slowed down or disappeared. As of late, he's still gotten hurt a couple of times. He's still gotten hit with some stuff that maybe you wouldn't like to see him get hit with, but he's dealt with it better. And he's gone out and he's gotten these finishes. And when he's had opportunities to finish, he snatched them up right away. That is a super important thing to me. The other thing that really makes this feel like we are seeing Kennedy turn a corner. He's 31 years old. He's 15 fights in. But this is a guy that started from zero. No martial arts experience whatsoever when he walked into Fortis MMA to learn to kickbox because his mother needed him to do something after school to, to keep himself busy and get him into something to develop some confidence, to deal with bullies and things of that nature. He's only been a pro since the end of 2016. Made his debut in November 2016. So I know that that is seven years ago, coming up to seven years ago. But like, that's not a lot of time when you think about how long some of these men and women have been competing. Half of his fights are in the UFC. More than half of his fights, quite frankly, 
are in the UFC. He has learned against the best competition in the world. And that is a steep learning curve. And I think he's now starting to hit that point where it all makes sense and it's all rise right now. Now, Dustin Jacoby is the kind of guy that if you're not putting it all together or you're not as good as maybe I think you can be, he'll show you. He'll show us. He'll prove that on Saturday. Savvy, sturdy veteran, very good striker, great gas tank, great conditioning. Go out there. We'll engage with you. We'll look to rough you up. This is the spot to me where we find out even more whether Nzechiku is the real deal and is somebody that is starting to make waves and going to be a factor at light heavyweight going forward. Featherweight matchup, Diego Lopez versus Gavin Tucker. My question is, can Lopez build off the Evloyev performance? So earlier this year, Diego Lopez jumped in on crazy short notice against undefeated Russian Mavsari Vloyev. Most of us expected Diego Lopez to get rolled because Vloyev is unbeaten. He has all the skills in the world. He has a complete arsenal, very good grappler, good hands. And Lopez went out there and right off the hop took the fight to Vloyev and for 15 minutes showed that he belonged. He deserved to be in there. And the reason I want to see if he can build off this is because there's an element of fights like that, that while we rightfully and understandably sit and praise the guy that comes in on short notice and looks good or wins, it's also a difficult thing for that person that wasn't preparing for the short notice opponent. So Mamsari Vloyev wasn't preparing for a dynamic unwielding, un, unyielding Diego Lopez, right? He wasn't preparing for a guy that's very good off his back, that's attacking at all times, that is willing to just jump right into the fire and get after it. So you have to put a little bit of, not an asterisk, but it's one of those things to me where I want to see the second performance, right? Because this is the one that will really tell me if he's capable of continuing to be that guy that looked so good against Mavzari Vloyev in a losing effort. Gavin Tucker is a 37-year-old Canadian from Newfoundland who is technical, who has good boxing, good hands, quick hands, but he hasn't fought in a couple of years, hasn't fought since his knockout loss to Dan Ige in Las Vegas. Feels like a good measuring stick. If Diego Lopez is the guy that a lot of people believe him to be, and think he's capable of being after that performance against Ivloyev, we see it on Saturday. He trains with a great group, mixing in with the people at Entram, as well as being the leader of the Brazilian Warriors team down in Mexico. He showed in that fight, he showed in some of his fights before that, against good competition, that he's somebody that probably should have been and deserves to be at this level. Now it's just about figuring out where he fits within the featherweight division. Move back to light heavyweight. Tanner Boser versus Alexa Kamer. And my question is, why is this on the main card? I say that with all due respect to the parties involved. I'm not somebody that traditionally wants to address things like this, that brings up things like this, because I'm looking at these fights from a, who are the competitors? What are the skills they bring to the table? I know all of these people in terms of what they do. And so I know whether it's on the main card or the prelims, I can tell you whether it's going to be a good fight or not. I can tell you whether you should pay attention or not. 
And so I don't generally get into the should be on the main card, shouldn't be on the main card, that type of stuff. I do hear because this feels like this feels like an egregious mistake. Let's be let's be frank. Tanner Boser lost his light heavyweight debut, first round stoppage loss to Iwan Kutilava earlier this year. Two losses at heavyweight prior to that. So he comes in on one side on a three-fight losing streak. Alexa Kamer lost his last two fights, hasn't fought in a couple of years. So he comes in on a two-year layoff and a two-fight losing streak. We haven't picked up a victory combined in five fights. And it feels like the only reason this is on the main card is because Kamer is a contender series graduate. Normally, I don't have a problem with elevating contender series graduates to the main card. It makes a lot of sense to me. I have always been somebody and will continue to be somebody that advocates for the show because I think it has been successful. And all the people that do the like, why do you have to go through contender series? What a shame that this person doesn't get signed right away. This is why you actually want some of those fighters you're advocating for to go through the contender series. They get an extra bump. They get an extra rub. They get main card opportunities when maybe they shouldn't. The reason I address it here is that there are several fights on the prelims featuring fighters that, in my opinion, merit greater exposure and are in positions where victories elevate them to stronger positions, where they're going to be needed and counted upon in the next fight, maybe two fights down the road, to be facing quality established competition, to be main card participants. And the sooner you introduce them, the sooner you establish them as people to pay attention to, the better. Now, as I said earlier, I'm somebody that will come here every week and tell you as we go through this, as we do 10 things, who the fighters to watch, who the important fights are, what the matchups to pay attention to are, regardless of where they fall on the lineup. It has been a thing I have advocated for and talked about a great deal over the last couple of years. But we shouldn't just be throwing fights like this on there because while I'm not somebody that cares about where a fight falls in the rundown, there are still loads of fans out there that look at the main card and view that as the best fights and the best fighters competing that weekend. We in the, in the community, in the bubble, understand that that is not at all correct. That is not necessarily true on a week-to-week -week basis. And many weeks, there are better fights, some better fights on the prelims than on the main card. And so while I don't think the UFC necessarily needs to do these lineups as a best to worst, for lack of a better term, lack of better terms, kind of rundown, I think they could do a better job in spots like this, where you have fighters that if you want to showcase a contender series grad, we've got a couple of those on the prelims. If you want to showcase a fight where good chance somebody gets finished, we got a couple of those too. So with all due respect to Tanner Boser and Alexa Kamer, who I hope prove me immeasurably wrong. I hope they go out and have an absolute slobber knocker of a fight or one of them gets a wild knockout in three seconds to reset the record books that I have to jump on the takeaways and be like, look, I was wrong. This fight was dope. They deserve to be. I'm glad it was on the main card. I hope that's what happens. I don't think it's going to be what happens though. And so... I just wonder if going forward, the UFC could make some wiser choices in terms of 
main card placement with a fight like this. Move to the lightweight division, Ignacio Bahamundes versus Ludovic Klein. My question is, what will Bahamundes show us here? So I like Nacho. Good fighter. 25 years old, three-fight winning streak over mid-pack guys. Right? Roosevelt Roberts, Rongju, and I can't remember the third one for the life of me right now. It's killing me. I'm going to pull it up. Here we go. Live podcasting, ladies and gentlemen. I am pulling up fight cards. To find out because I don't want to be able, I don't want to not be able to tell me Trey Ogden on short notice. There we go. He was supposed to face Nick Moda. Nick Moda got a cut and Trey Ogden jumped in on short notice. Unanimous decision win there for Ignacio Bahamundes. The reason I ask what will he show us here is despite the three five winning streak, which is solid, and being 25 and still having plenty of room to grow, coming from a good camp, working with a Valley Flow striking team. So Mike Valley, Bilal Muhammad is there. Yair Rodriguez is there, various other people. For me, it feels like it's time to show some of that forward progress. That's what I would like to see from Bahamundis on Saturday. Now, first and foremost, go get the victory, young man. Three straight is great. Four straight is even better. I will not fault you if you look like the same dude that fought Trey Ogden and you continue to stack victories. That is the most important thing. But as someone that watches fighters with an eye towards the future, and have watched Bahamundes since he was on the Contender Series, I want to see some progress. I want to see some development. He scored third-round finishes over Roosevelt Roberts and Rongju in those first two fights. Let's see if you can't get a second-round finish here. Let's see if you can't put a few things together to where you're pushing Ludovic Klein a little bit more. Klein's coming in off a draw against Jai Herbert earlier this year. In London, it was a draw because there was a point deduction in the third round. He struggled a little bit with the length of Jai Herbert. Now he's facing an equally tall, equally rangy, equally dangerous, younger kid. Let's see if Bahamundes can't build off some of the success that Jai Herbert had. Take a couple of steps forward. It's been a couple months. See what we've gone to the well with. See what we've figured out and built upon as we move forward. As I said, if it's just another victory and he's a 25-year-old that's on a four-fight winning streak in the UFC lightweight division, I'm good with that. I'm not going to be critical of he won, but you won't hear that from me on Sunday. I would, however, like to see some progress, like to see a little bit extra, a little bit of something new from La Haula because I think he's a good prospect. I think he's somebody to watch. Good kid. Hear nothing but good things about him from Rodriguez, from Bilal Muhammad when I talk to them. So let's see if it plays out that way on Saturday. It's Keyboard Kimura, one question for every fight for UFC Nashville presented by One Bone. We move to the preliminary portion of the card. Closed out by Billy Quarantillo versus Damon Jackson in the featherweight division. My question is who holds their position in the second 15? I love this fight. This is, these are my people, right? These are my guys. Veterans that aren't in the top 15, that probably aren't ever going to be in the top 15 or be contenders, but are absolute essentials to this second 15, to this pack of fighters determining who moves forward and who doesn't. We've seen Billy Quarantillo always in entertaining fights, Damon Jackson the same. They're both coming off losses but are both guys that just go out there and leave it all out there every single time they get in the cage. 
Quarantillo had a chance to climb into the top 15 last time out, was in the co-main event against Edson Barbosa. And so by nature of that, maybe this should be on the main card. I understand why it is closing out the prelims. It is the kind of fight you want to close out a show, to elevate people and get them excited. Now I want to continue watching the main card. All of that makes sense. I just want to see which of these two dudes is able to go out there. Both 34. Jackson turns 35 in a couple of weeks. Billy Q later in the year in December, early December, I believe. Which one goes out and just says, look, we're kind of the same here and there can only be one, right? This is the Highlander fight at Featherweight this week. There can only be one. Only one of us gets to be the guy that faces the young up-and-comer or the ranked fighter that's looking to rebound and needs to build or is falling down the rankings as Billy Q did last time out against Edson Barbosa. Let's just see. It is guaranteed to me, I will guarantee it right now, that it will be an entertaining fight. It will be a great fight. There's no way it's not going to be. Even if it ends early, if it ends quickly, whatever, it will be a great fight. These are my people. Let's see which one of them hangs on to their spot in the second 15. Shift to bantamweight, Kyler Phillips versus Honey Barcelos. My question is, will Kyler Phillips ever take the next step? Now, it's probably unfair of me to put emphasis on ever. Because Kyler Phillips just turned 28. Turned 28 in June. And so 28 is right in that early stages of athletic prime. Certainly, time and opportunity to continue to grow. But I put emphasis on it because Kyler Phillips is somebody that I've been watching for a number of years, waiting for for a number of years, always looked at as somebody that I thought could make a run in this division and have a successful contender, be in the top 15 kind of career in the UFC. He showed flashes of that so far, right? Earned a win over Song Yudong, wasn't able to build on it. Looked great last time out in February of 2022 against Marcelo Royo getting a third round submission win. But much like the Song Yudong fight, where he wasn't able to capitalize after that one, losing to Howley and Paiva, follows up the Royo fight, where a fight with Jack Shore gets canceled because Shore gets hurt. And then he pops hot for Osterine, gets a six-month suspension. Here we are. He's finally making his debut for 2023 against Barcelos this weekend. Barcelos tagging in for Saeed Nurmagomedov. And so for me... As somebody, as I said, that has been paying attention to Kyler Phillips when he was on the Contender Series, when he was on the Ultimate Fighter, when he was just a kid coming up through the MMA lab, through their amateur program, into the pro ranks. It's a gym that I have a lot of respect for, a team that I have a great deal of respect for. I've been waiting to see this dude. And he's 4-1 and one in the UFC, which is great, right? Ultimately, he's having a lot of success. He's won 80% of his fights in the UFC. So it makes me a bit of a dick to be sitting here being like, is he ever going to do better than this? He's won 80% of his fights. That's great. I think he can be a top 15 guy. And I just want to see if he's ever going to be able to put all those pieces together. We started, I think, seeing that in the Royal fight. He looked great. Carried his conditioning, carried his ability, his execution over through into the third round, which had been a thing that had escaped him in the past. And now he gets Barcelos, who is certainly a tough test, an experienced veteran, but a guy that's been on the decline lately. Lost to Victor Henry last year. Lost to Umar Nurmagomedov earlier this year. It is an opportunity for Kyler Phillips to go out there and show that he is somebody that right now exists in that second 15 and has the ability to go forward and potentially break into that top 15 where it's a bunch of killers 
it's a bunch of really talented fighters. But I think he's capable of being in there. We go to the welterweight division, Jeremiah Wells versus Carlston Harris. My question is, what does Jeremiah Wells need to do to get some love? This is one of the other fights that, to me, should be on the main card. And it's primarily from the Wells perspective. So Jeremiah Wells is 4-0 in the UFC. He has defeated Worley Alves, Blood Diamond, Court McGee, and Matthew Semmelsberger. I understand that none of those names are great big names. Worley Alves a failed prospect, former Ultimate Fighter winner. Court McGee, former Ultimate Fighter winner, but older, late in his career. Semi, we saw him last weekend. Good, but not great. Still figuring it out. So there's not a huge win in there. But 4-0 in the UFC is 4-0 in the UFC. Three of those are finishes. Two of those are in the first round. He's 12, 2-1 overall. And yet he's facing Carlston Harris, who is good and has had some success in the UFC. But we saw in his fight with Shavkat Rachmanov that ended very quickly and is no shame in losing to Shavkat Rachmanov, but it puts a ceiling on, it puts a cap on what we expect of Carlston Harris, who, like Wells, is 36 years old. But the thing we've seen with Wells is that it feels like there's still upside. It feels like we haven't seen this is where it tops out. And at 36, why not give him a shot? Why is he in here with Carlston Harris? Why not get him in there with somebody that is just outside of the top 15 or even somebody just in the very bottom, the lower third of the top 15? Like, let's just see. Let's just find out. This feels like one of those situations where there's no reason to slow play it. And I've talked about this a bunch as of late, wrote about it on OSDB Sports a couple of weeks ago. It just feels that there are times where the UFC misses opportunities to push people a little further and a little faster than maybe they think of because it's almost like they can't see the next steps. It's like they can't see the possibility of what comes with a couple of wins. So let's let's game this out, right? Jeremiah Wells goes out and wins on Saturday. Let's say he gets a finish because he has big power. He's a big athlete. Despite being 36, everybody from that gym, the Daniel Gracie crew, John Marquez, which is Sean Brady, Joe Pfeiffer, Andre Petrosky, a bunch of really good fighters, Pat Sabatini, all of them to a man. Talk about Jeremiah Wells being the strongest, best athlete, most powerful dude in that room. So if he goes out and gets a finish on Saturday, moves to 5-0 and in the UFC with four finishes, that dude has to get a step up in competition. And then most likely, it's somebody either in that second 15 that has a name, that has some established credentials, that has some credibility, like an Alex Morono, let's say, who is my favorite guy in the second 15 because he's just a consummate pro and we know what a win over Alex Morono means and we know what it takes to beat him. And so then that kind of fight is on a main card of a show like this in the future. Maybe it's on the prelims of a pay-per-view, especially if we go to the East Coast. That November show at Madison Square Garden, Jeremiah Wells on the prelims on a 5-0 5 and 0 in the UFC run, that'd be dope. A bunch of people would come down to come down from Philly to watch that. And he's in there against somebody good. And if he wins that one, he's in the top 15. So why is he here in Nashville facing another 36-year-old tucked away where he has the potential to go to 5 and 0? Fighters that have won four straight in the UFC, three of them by finish, to my opinion, in my opinion, should not be on the prelims. 
Not when Tanner Boser and Alexa Kamer are on the main card. This is a guy that should be getting an opportunity and a showcase. There's another fighter. We're going to talk about him next that also fits that bill. This is a missed opportunity to me. So please, if you take anything away from this program today, it is pay attention to Jeremiah Wells and Carlston Harris on Saturday. I think Wells is really interesting. Like this is a guy that to me feels like he could make a little Cinderella. Hey, look, the old guy still got it kind of run. We all love those, right? The guy that kind of comes out of nowhere that you don't expect late in his career, only got here a couple of years ago. What a cool story. Showcase him. Pay attention, please. He's not getting the he's not getting the love and attention that he deserves. Please pay attention on Saturday. His results thus far merit it. Move to the flyweight division. Cody Durden versus Jake Hadley. He is the other person that I think merits a real close eye on Saturday. My question is, can Hadley jump ahead of Tatsuro Tyra? So if you've listened to me over the last year and a half, you know highly. I think of the undefeated Japanese prospect, Tyra. He struggled last time out against Edmund Charest, showed some holes in his defensive, in his striking defense. The grappling is still on point. But at 23, there's a lot of room to grow. There's a lot of things that still need to come together. And Hadley is someone to me that at 26, that came up through Cage Warriors, won gold there, came over to Contender Series, struggled in his first fight, lost his first fight, to Alan Nascimento, which feels in retrospect like a tremendous learning opportunity. Get in there and lose to a guy that is just better than you at that early stage that shows you you got to work. Now he gets the chance against Cody Durden to potentially push it to three straight wins. He's finished each of his last two. He looked absolutely phenomenal in London against Malcolm Gordon earlier this year. The striking was on point. The recognition and the IQ of identifying that he hurt Gordon to the body. So I'm going to go right back there and get him out of here was tremendous. And this feels like a place where if Jake Hadley can have a big performance, he can vault himself ahead of Tyra and closer to the guy that I know ultimately he wants to fight to establish himself as the best British flyweight prospect. And that is Muhammad Makayev. He's talked about it before. He talked about it in London at UFC 286 after his win. Durden is a tough out who's already been in there with Makayev. So the bar's kind of pretty high if he wants to try to beat Muhammad Makayev's time because I think Makayev did it in under a minute in his promotional debut. But Durden's on a good run. He's won three straight. This is a good test. This is a good fight. It's a good opportunity for Jake Hadley to keep building on this success that he's had, continue to go forward, and maybe put himself one step ahead of Tyra as sort of the, the second high-level prospect in this division behind Muhammad Makayev. Because as much as I like Jake Hadley, you're not jumping Muhammad Makayev just yet. Next up, the fight that continues to change every single day. So I will tell you this as of right now is what the fight is. Sean Woodson versus Dennis Bazookia. It has been several different things for Sean Woodson, who has traveled through Steve Garcia, Jesse Butler, I lost his name for a second, but we got it back. Myron Santos, and now Bazookia. My question here is, will Bazookia make the most of this opportunity? So Dennis Bazookia is a guy that the MMA community has been rooting for for a little while. He is part of the Longo Weidman MMA team. That includes Nazim Sadikov, 
Rob Dwalishvili, Aljo, that whole set of people. Chris Weidman, obviously, the name is in there. He was on Contender Series a couple of years ago, losing to Melsic Bagdasarian. He was on Contender Series last year, getting a win over Kaleo Romero, but didn't get a contract. It was a good performance, but not a great performance. Comes into this one on a seven-fight winning streak. And he's one of these guys that every time he competes, various people in my timeline post up the like, is, Den is it finally enough for Dennis Bazookia to get his chance? Here it is. And I understand it's short notice and it's hella short notice taking the fight on Tuesday against Sean Woodson, who has been through a full camp, has multiple fights in the UFC and presents challenges just from a physical standpoint, right? Great, big, tall, long, rangy featherweight. But this is the opportunity. We've seen people, especially this year, we've seen a bunch of folks come in and if not show out in a losing effort, go out and win, right? Marcus McGee a few weeks ago and is fighting in a couple of weeks time back in Las Vegas when, when the UFC returns after this, after this card, he went out in his short notice debut, took the fight on three days notice, went out and beat Journey Newsom. Now I'm not saying that Bazookia has to win in order to make the most of this opportunity, but this can't be a situation where after a bunch of years of people kind of rallying for you and pushing for you and wanting to see you get this opportunity, you go out and lay an egg. This has got to be a good performance. It's got to be a strong effort. He's capable of it. Trains with a great group. Has looked good in spots. Is coming off back-to-back -back stoppage wins on the regional circuit in good regional promotions. One in UAE Warriors, one in CFFC. Two promotions that are very good against and get you reasonable op opposition, reasonable opponents. He's not just going out and smashing cans. But now he's where everybody wanted him to be. And now we got to see it. It's a tough ask on three days notice, four days notice. He's a guy that I know and I'm sure is always ready to go because this always felt like it was going to be his way into the UFC after he didn't get that opportunity winning on top on contender series, excuse me, last year. Now he's got to make the most of it. So let's see if he can. Opening fight of the night, Ode Osborne versus Asu Almabayev. My question is what can we expect from Almabayev? 29 years old, 17 and two overall, 13 fight winning streak. Those numbers alone get my attention. They make me sit up and take notice and go, okay, let me, let me look through some of this stuff. So when looking at his record, you pull up topology, there's wins over guys that you recognize. Zach Makovsky, Chris Kalidis, uh, had a win over Alexander Duskalchuk, who was signed to the UFC and booked into a couple of fights, but it never materialized. So those are all recognizable, meaningful wins that make you go. And even though Zach Makovsky is older and it hasn't been great lately, you look at it and you go, okay, that's those, those mean something. I understand what a victory like that means. There's also a lot of shiny record guys, right? Where you're going out and you're fighting guys that have three fights, four fights, six fights, seven fights. And so it's difficult to get a accurate representation of where a fighter like that stands when they come into the UFC, which is why I love this fight because we know who O'Day Osborne is. We know exactly what he brings to the table. We know the guys he's beaten. We know the guys he's lost to and how he's lost to them. And so it provides an opportunity right out of the shoot to establish a baseline for where Amabayev fits in 
the flyweight division. You beat Ode Osborne, that tells us one thing. You lose to Ode Osborne, that tells us another. And how the fight plays out, how that victory or defeat comes, certainly factors in there. This isn't a one and done, make all assessments and, and we're locked in stone. But this is first impression time. And I want to see guy on a 13 fight winning streak, 17 and two overall, as I said, let's see. Because Ode Osborne is pretty good, but also not in the top 15, which tells you how dangerous things are in the flyweight division and how competitive things are in the flyweight division. So let's see where Almabayev fits in on Saturday. That is it for this show. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow with 10 things. And then we'll be back on Friday with the double dip. We had a great week in Salt Lake City, 10 and one with the picks, over $1,000 of profit in terms of the betting show. So I'm going to do all the work I can in the next couple of days to prep those and find good wagers and see if we can't keep this going. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Spencer Kite. Check out the boys at One Bone, at One Bone Brand on Twitter and Instagram, onebonebrand.com for all your apparel needs. ESK20 at checkout for 20% off your initial order. Click on the Substack, scan the QR code, spencerkite.substack.com, keyboard Kimura newsletter, all of the stuff I put out on the, this channel, straight to your inbox, $0 a month, 50 bu five bucks a month, $0, five bucks a month, or $50 for the year. That's the pricing. However you subscribe, I greatly appreciate it. I am getting loopy. I am getting a little bit punch drunk here on Wednesday. I appreciate you. I love you. I look forward to talking to you later this week. I hope your week is going well so far. Be good to yourselves. Be good to one another. See you tomorrow for 10 things.